Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Joanna Crone. She's the founder of Solace in Portsmouth, Ohio. So, Joanna, welcome. Hi, Greg. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me to speak with you. Okay. So, Ohio has been described as the epicenter of the opioid epidemic by Sam Quinones in his book, Dreamland. And, Joanna, you've had a front row seat as the epidemic has evolved. In fact, Sam met with you several times in researching his book. So, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. And, I'd like to start with how the story has personally affected you. Um, My personal connection with this is the fact that I lost my 18-year-old son, his name was Wes Workman, to a drug-related death in 2008. Um, He was a senior in high school. So um, as tragic as that is, I tried to take his death and the devastation that it called me, caused me and this community, and I tried to turn it into something positive. My condolences for your loss, Thank Joanna. You. We, we share you. that. Um, so you really, back then, that was, that was quite a, a bold step to take. In particular, I mean, now you have more and more people that are coming out and and speaking out. But back then, can you speak to the environment and everything? Sure. Well, I was the first person to speak out, actually. Um, There were so many people who were suffering. They were, um, I think there was shame attached to it because of this stigma of addiction But I wanted everybody to know my son died because of drugs. He was a drug user. You know, he went from um, part-time use, you know, um, thinking he was having fun, the the youth kind of thing, to um, abusing and then addicted. And I wanted everybody to know what's going on and to know what could happen to their kids and their family members. So I did speak out. So many times today we hear about uh, a, a young uh, young person or a person in their 20s who started on pain pills because they had some kind of an injury and then it morphed into addiction. In your case, though, with your son, it was strictly – he was partying. Is that right? He was partying, yes. He was experimenting, um, 
he found that he really liked the feeling he got from it, and that is how it started for him, yes. Okay. So um, how was it initially? You're the first family to really speak out. Uh, so what did you do? How did you do that? Did you, did you gather, you know, have gatherings in churches? What did you do? Well, it started by me um, speaking at a school about organ donation because my son was able to be an organ donor. And as soon as I did that, a friend of mine said, will you speak at my child's school but tell the story of his addiction? And I did, and just the impact that it had on the students, watching them, they sat there, they listened, they cried, they come up and they hugged me and they cried, because to them it was something different and unique. It was telling it like, this was one of us, this could be me, this could be my friend. It made it real that he was still a high school student. And after that I was hooked. I just thought, this is my purpose in my life to share my son's story, and to try to help as many people as I can from making those same mistakes. So that led you to found Solace. Correct. So tell us how that, how that happened and how that unfolded. Sure. Um, I love speaking in schools, but I wanted to do more. I mean, like I, I guess I might, have said, might say I became addicted to sharing my son's message. I just couldn't do enough. So I called a few places. Um, one of them, the counseling center, said, we are looking for a parent to represent the parent sector in this new Spider County drug action team. And we think it would be good to have a grief support group, but this is going to be your group. You know, we're just telling you this is what's needed in the area, so you go with it. And I did. Um, I thought grief support, huh? Not really what I had in mind, but yeah, people need this. So I started that, and it was small, five people in a church basement. They brought friends. Uh, it started, you know, getting public that they were, we were having this, and people started talking about it. And before I knew it, you know, we were doing um, lots of grief support and prevention, and from there, it went even farther. Okay. Um, so you started it in, I'm trying to get the timeline here, Joanna. Was it 2008? 2010. Yeah, the first meeting was exactly um, two years to the day that my son died. Oh. So I started proacting, you know, I started everything before that, but it became official, official solace. Two years to the day from he died. Wow, that's that's tremendous. So yeah. then, with your organization, you you also in your community, you witnessed a big event, and that was when the state passed Bill ninety three, um, mm -hmm. and the pill mills closed. There was right. a little bit of a sea shift there in the community, and all of those people that were dependent upon the pills. What happened to them? All of the people who was dependent on the opiates did not have any place to go for treatment. Um, today, there's many places in our community where a person can go and get treatment and get clean. And back then, there wasn't um, as many. So all of the people who were addicted to the opiates turned to heroin. 
so the the, the heroin uh the population that was addicted to heroin just had to explode almost overnight, I would think. No? Oh, it exploded. Yeah, it did. It exploded overnight. Wow. Yeah, it was, a, it was a whole new epidemic. So how did that impact the, your group? I would imagine your group just swelled like crazy, solace, and, and got much bigger. Oh, it did. And, and like that's when it went from um, grief support and prevention to like um, recovery support. You know, families were coming in, not just people who had already lost children or family members, but people who were afraid they were going to lose their loved ones to this epidemic. So we grew. We grew, and it it was going statewide. Um, I was traveling. I was setting up solace chapters in other counties. I think to this day there's about 20 solace chapters throughout Ohio. Meanwhile, you saw this need, this growing need for recovery facilities that was and help in recovery that was an unmet need. So yes. what did you do about that? Well, it all started when one of the local places had some issues and <clears throat> they were closed. Um, that left 1,200 people who were receiving medically assisted treatment and counseling with no place to go and in a panic. So at Solace, I opened up the doors and they flooded it. Um, We were doing crisis um, counseling. Some of the people who worked at the facility that was closed come and volunteered with me for many months, you know, just helping these people. And at that point, it was like, why don't I just actually become a certified facility. You know, we can bill for this. I can pay the people who are spending all their time and their money on gas coming here to help, and then we can have the money to really create something that will help these people more. Yeah. So that's what I did. And up to that point, you it was all volunteer, so nobody was paying. It was all vol- Yes, I had yeah. people with me for six months volunteering, helping these people, coming in every single day for nothing. Wow. So you found that that was kind of a passion for you. Oh, it was a passion. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So at that time, I became certified as a prevention specialist and certified as a chemical dependency counselor assistant. And um, once, you know, we got our credentialing through the state and we became a certified OMOS facility, you know, it was, it, it just grew and exploded even more. Yeah. So about a year ago, you you came to a point where it was time to move on and, and um, do your own thing, do something new. Tell us about that. Yeah, a little over a year ago, there... Um, there was just a parting of ways. We had grown, you know, hundreds of, of clients, 20-some paid employees, um, still a nonprofit, mind you, and very emotional. I felt like that was kind of my baby, and that was in my son's memory. Mm-hmm. But rather than feeling sorry for myself and, you know, just crumbling, I thought, I guess I'm going to do this again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Thus began the process of founding, forming, and establishing Port 45 Recovery. And I want to tell you about the name. 
That's exactly what I was going to ask, Joanna. (laughs) You read my mind. Okay. The name Port, of course, stands for Portsmouth. And the 45 was my son's high school football number. Um, He was an excellent football player, um, led his team in tackles for three years. He was um, he was very passionate about football. So the 45 has kind of lived on in his memory. So now I have Port 45 recovery. <laughs> what class was, was your son in? He was a senior, and he would have graduated in 2008. He died um, five weeks before his high school graduation. Hmm. My son graduated in 2006. So they were pretty close to the same age, and they both loved football. They were both defensive players. My Uh son was a defensive back. Yeah, and um, so uh, (laughs) yep, and and that's why we're cover two. That's a that's a defense in football. So, um, so Port Forty Five recovery—that's fantastic. That's uh, and that that had to just take so much. To do that, so to and and start over in effect, but in a different direction. So tell us, right. what does Port Forty Five do today? Okay, well, we have just become certified at the beginning of this year to do outpatient treatment, and we are also a certified state prevention facility. So hopefully, there will be grants and funding coming in, and I can. Um, do some programs in some schools, um, as I was doing before. But um, I'm already working with one school in particular in small groups, and, and I love it. Um, besides helping, you know, the struggling addict and their family, my passion is still the young people his age that are out there making mistakes that they don't realize could cost them their life. Yeah. So... It's been, what, about four years since your interviews with uh, Sam Quinones for the Dreamland book? Maybe that. It doesn't seem like that long. Okay. Three or four years, I guess. Okay. So since then, what has happened in the community and how have things changed in the community in relation to the opioid epidemic? Well, I will tell you about that, but first I do want to say this, Um, when People found out that Sam was going to do this book and that Portsmouth was going to be a big part of it, and it was going to be about the drug epidemic. I saw a lot of people say, oh, no, or oh, my gosh, you know, because like you mentioned before, we had became very popular, but not in a good way, popular for what was happening here. Yeah, so they didn't like the stigma and didn't like the black mark, in essence, that it it left on the reputation of Portsmouth. Why are you bringing all this negativity to Mm. our community? And I would say, this is here. If we don't address the problem, it's going to get worse. So a lot of people not happy that this book was going to be wrote, but since it has been, things have changed so much. I just heard a um, student the other day announce in court that his class, his English class, was going to start on the book and go through it. And I thought, wow, they're using this in the school now. That is amazing. That is terrific. Amazing. Yeah. So since this book... um, I would like to say we've pulled, the the community has pulled together, yes, but we we still need to be stronger. I mean, I wish some of these um, 
I wish some of the treatment facilities would kind of work together. They're all, they're all very independent, and I understand that, but we need a really strong community like we are one. We are one in this community, and we're going to fight even harder. There's been a lot of great things happen. There's been some setbacks. But basically, people realize, I mean, they're willing to look at the situation and what is happening, and they're much, much more flexible as far as, you know, okay, there's a new treatment facility opening right here. That's okay. Good, good. You know, people can get help. So there's there's been a lot of change, thanks to Sam. <laughs> yeah. So do you have some specifics that you'd like to cite in, in terms of the particularly great things? And then on the other side, some of the setbacks. Sure. Um, well, some of the great things, like I said, I mentioned earlier, um, back when my son had this problem and passed away, there was, you know, one big, wonderful treatment facility, um, but that was it. And, you know, they only had room for so many people. And then there was a stigma. Um, nobody wanted to go seek help because then people would think they were an addict. So since since the book, um, there's been a lot of places that have opened. There's a lot of help out there for people who are ready to say, okay, I don't want to live this way anymore. Something's got to change. So I see all the treatment facilities that are in this area um, as a big advantage, a big plus, a wonderful thing that's happened. Um, in fact, I understand that people come from remote areas to go to Portsmouth now and recover. Yeah, some of them do. Um, some places, and of course, I would, I'm just outpatient, but I would see anybody from wherever they would like to come, you know, here. Um, we've had people as far as Huntington, but some of them, for some of the inpatient um, treatment, you know, come from out of state and several states over. Hmm. So I guess now we're kind of being becoming known not just as, you know, the pill capital and all of that, but we're also a recovery community. And we're going to start working on some T-shirts and signs and some things that say um, recovery strong Soda County. So um, I'm interested to see how that happens, and I would love all the other facilities to um, pitch in on it, maybe help with the design, and everybody wear them. You know, it, it's just it's not just Port 45 shirt. It's not just the other places. It's everybody's shirt. Everybody's proud of um, recovery proud here and recovery strong inside County. Clearly, you've been a leader in Portsmouth in the recovery from this epidemic, and you bring a sense of hope with your enthusiasm and your ambitious undertaking here now, your second one with Port 45 Recovery. So what advice would you have, Joanna, for other communities as they try and get their arms around this and, and move their community in a positive direction? Well, I would say every person in that community is important. Whether you are just the mother of an addict, you have the right to stand up and shout out, I don't like this and I need to change this. I guess I'm proof that one person can really, can, really can make the difference. You know, it just takes one, one leader and the other ones will follow. Um, so if you're a parent with a child or a, a husband with a wife, 
however it works out, you know, don't be afraid to just kind of stand up and say, I don't like what's happening here and things need to change. And when you get the parents and the police force and um, the local leaders, um, whether they're commissioners or um, mayors or so have you, you get everybody together with doctors, with pharmacies, and if the whole community comes together and sets down and comes up with a plan, you're going to make progress. You're going to change things. It might be very slow, but changing things for the positive really slow is a lot better than watching it continue to go downhill. So any community out there that is struggling, you can fix it. Outstanding. Joanna, I want to thank you for joining us today. And um, do, you, do you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners? Well, I'm going to um, recovery is beautiful. Don't be afraid to admit that you have a problem. Um, there's no shame in that. Addiction is a brain disease. It's not a choice. And, um, you know, just find some good support and go with it and get your life back. Excellent. Thank you. We've been visiting today with Joanna Crone, the founder of Solace in Portsmouth, Ohio, um, the originator, the original founder, and also the founder of Port 45 Recovery. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.